This episode of New Politics was released on the 19th of November, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, a major breakthrough in the diplomatic relationship with China, the US midterm elections and what it means for Australia, we look at the latest opinion polls, and is sports gambling becoming a big problem in Australia? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, and I'm proud to announce my candidacy for the nomination for the Republican President of the United States. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au. And all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. There's been a major breakthrough in the diplomatic relationship between Australia and China, with the Australian Prime Minister and Chinese President holding a meeting at the G20 summit in Indonesia. And this is a process initiated by both Anthony Albanese and Xi Jinping. It follows years of hostility from the previous coalition government directed towards China, and a great deal of commentary verging on racism from the mainstream media in Australia. The low point in the relationship was when the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, they accused China of deliberately causing the coronavirus outbreak in 2020. China retaliated by imposing trade sanctions on Australian goods and services to the tune of $20 billion. All it took was some sensible people on both sides to start the dialogue, sit down in a room, discuss the issues, look at common ground and create a pathway towards shared and common interests. Anthony Albanese has shown what constructive international diplomacy looks like, and it's a stark contrast from the actions of the previous government who just wanted to rattle the sabre and shout at everyone from the rooftops. It's extraordinary. It seems that the um, mainstream media, or at least sections of the mainstream media, want the foreign minister, the trade minister, and the prime minister to stay in Canberra working at government and doing nothing, which is essentially what the last government's ministers did. They'd swan off overseas and achieve nothing, but essentially tried to keep it a very parochial and a very low achieving government because their, their whole aim was destroying government, essentially, having no government so you could set wages as you'd like, so you could cut taxes to nothing, all of that. We have now a foreign minister who not only is intelligent, but can demonstrate that she's intelligent and that she's across the issue and can handle complex and high level and delicate negotiations with aplomb and with professionalism. And again, this isn't to say that I will absolutely agree with everything Penny Wong does always uncritically, but having looked at it a bit, it's very hard to find anything she's done that I can criticize so far. First rule of politics is all politicians eventually disappoint. So that will happen one day, presumably. The 30-minute meeting with President Xi was extraordinary. 30 minutes, a lot of world leaders will only get 15 minutes. And every country in the world is really interested in talking to two countries, the United States and China. 
So President Xi's diary fills up very quickly in a way that, say, the Prime Minister of Japan or the Prime Minister of Australia doesn't fill up as quickly as President of China and President of the United States. It seems to me to be somewhat of an achievement to get a 30-minute meeting, and it would have been a 30-minute meeting, and it's, it ran over time. The United States and China have a three-hour meeting. That makes a whole lot of sense because they're also talking about broader issues that aren't just directly concerned with them and trying to manage one superpower and one emerging superpower and there'd be a lot of how do they deal with these issues and that issue so that they're not stepping on each other's toes in such a way. Australia doesn't have that interest with China. Even in the South Pacific, a lot of that stuff doesn't need to be dealt with at the G20, as we've seen. Senator Wong has gone overseas and regained a lot of Australia's influence in the region peacefully and in a way that didn't really see China losing any major face, but it did assert Australia's influence in the area. Clearly, Anthony Albanese is much more well regarded than Scott Morrison in that he could get the meeting and he could seemingly run over time, even if it was only two minutes. Well, this is actually a big diplomatic achievement by Anthony Albanese and the Labor government, and it's a great improvement from the massive hysterics that we got from the previous government. And we also said at that time on new politics that nothing would ever change in the Australia-China relationship for as long as Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister. And China was probably going to keep adding more trade embargoes and more tariffs on Australian imported goods as punishment for the unhinged comments from Morrison when he blamed China for deliberately causing the coronavirus and called on the World Health Organisation to investigate. Now, as you pointed out, the meeting between Albanese and Xi Jinping went on for 32 minutes, but the critics have been coming out to say, well, hang on, it was only a 32-minute meeting, but that's 32 minutes more than whatever Scott Morrison achieved. And I think it shows that Albanese is a strong player or can be a strong player on the international scene. He was smart. He was shrewd. He didn't back down. And he said that he wanted to achieve whatever is in Australia's interest. And I think it's a welcome change to that unhinged megaphone diplomacy that we used to get from Scott Morrison, Malcolm Turnbull, Peter Dutton and Tony Abbott. It shows, if nothing else that they're prepared to take him seriously and then he's got to prove himself to them. I don't think they ever took Scott Morrison seriously. I think they took Malcolm Turnbull a bit seriously but knew that he was, well, was badly managing a bunch of backwater yahoos. So I don't think he got taken as seriously as he would have liked. And Tony Abbott was never really taken seriously. The famous video of him trying to make small talk with the head of the World Bank the head of the World Bank just walking off in some despair, contempt. I'm not quite sure how you'd put it. And one of the things too, and I will be fair, when Malcolm Turnbull took over, we knew that the Prime Minister could go overseas and we wouldn't be on tenterhooks wondering how he was going to uh, make some kind of major gaffe. And it's the same with Prime Minister Albanese and Senator Wong, in that we know that if they go overseas, even if we don't agree with the policy that they're pushing, they're not going to embarrass the country. And that's a nice change. 
And I guess that's the key difference in the approach as well. Historically, the coalition has always ramped up a fear of China for based domestic political benefit. And Labor governments were also joining in during the early years of federation. But it was Gough Whitlam who cleared the pathway for strong links and that strong relationship mm. between Australia and China in 1972. And 50 years later, Anthony Albanese has said that he wants to do the same thing. And the mainstream media... and They've been doing what they always do. They've been trying to downplay all of the achievements of this Labor government in this situation, even though this is a major breakthrough. They said that it was just a side meeting, and that's technically true, but a side meeting in diplomatic circles, that's not just an impromptu meeting in a corridor or over the water cooler or anything like that. It's still a formal meeting, and it does involve a lot of dialogue. And initially, the media demanded that Albanese does have to meet Xi Jinping immediately, but then they said that he wouldn't be able to get a meeting with him. And then when Albanese did get a meeting with Xi Jinping, they said that China is dangerous and why is Albanese even meeting with the Chinese president? And there was also the nine media reporting getting into the finer details that Xi was the host of the meeting and Albanese was just a guest, even though the meeting was actually held in Indonesia, not in China. They also went on to say, well, the meeting with Albanese wasn't very warm, whatever that means. US President Joe Biden, he got a three-hour meeting. Albanese only got 32 minutes. How useless is that? As we keep saying, the mainstream media represents conservative interests and conservative politics, and they just cannot accept that Scott Morrison and the Liberal National Coalition was hopeless on international relationships and almost completely destroyed the relationship with China. And we've also recently had senior journalists at the ABC defending Scott Morrison and suggesting that the difficulties with China weren't his fault at all. Well, whose fault was it then? These problems just don't arise out of thin air. Why can't the media just recognise that Anthony Albanese and the Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong, they've repaired an important relationship that's in Australia's interest after the coalition spent the best part of nine years trying to destroy it? You know, it seems like they just much rather walk over hot coals than admit this. If China's the host, it means that China reached out to Australia for the meeting, I think. But I don't think you can sort of walk up and say, let's have a meeting and you supply everything. Australia can host, of course, foreign nations. In this case, it sounds like that it was China who reached out to Australia. Now, that might have only been to see if they could get a measure of the new government. Let's talk to these people and, and find out if they're better than the last lot. Well, I guess it was also going to decide whether it's going to be yum char or sausage rolls. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, <laughs> go down to that lovely place in Marrickville for yum char, and I'm sure there are plenty of nice sausage rolls places in China. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, the Chinese government, would have done their deep analysis through both obvious means by reading newspapers and reports and but also through other means of looking to see how well the Australian government is travelling and if, if things had improved with the Liberal National Coalition gone, was Labor a better government for this? Uh, the other thing too with Gough Whitlam, he get, went over as an opposition leader. It's one of the things that damages... Billy McMahon's chance of winning election in 1972. Whitlam goes over in 71 to meet with uh, Mao Zedong and McMahon mocks him for it. And then it turns out that Nixon and Henry Kissinger went over a bit later, I think, in a secret 
showing that Gough Whitlam was actually ahead of his time in all following the zeitgeist in terms of how to view China. McMahon was uh, yesterday's person. And then, of course, when Whitlam is elected prime minister, one of the first thing they do is uh, recognize the government out of China, which they hadn't done, even though they'd been there since 1949. So in this case, we can give the Australian government a high score in terms of its success. We can be sure that at least in foreign affairs, we have a government who's not going to embarrass us and and who's not going to try and resurrect racist tropes of the 1800s and the early 1900s up to really 1972, and that we're heading in a fairly modern and useful direction. Now, if they could walk the line between American, keeping America on side and keeping China on side, that would be even better. I hope they don't sort of fall back to being pro-America always, if that makes sense. And of course, we've got a lot of problems with the Chinese government and their human rights issues and, and that, but we also live in the real world and we have to accept that sometimes you've got to do business with people who you fundamentally don't agree with. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. But there was also another narrative going on that relates to human rights, and that's the narrative that Anthony Albanese should have brought up human rights issues and abuses of the Uyghur population in the province of Xinjiang. But no need to stop there. There's other human rights abuses in quite a few places in China. There's Tibet, Hong Kong. There's the Falun Gong movement. They've got so many political prisoners over there. There's freedom of the press, gay and lesbian rights. And of course, all of these issues should be looked at. But Australia's got its own human rights issues as well. The treatment of indigenous people, inhumane treatment of asylum seekers. So so of course, it's valid to bring up all of those issues with China. But Probably best to look at what's happening in your backyard first before you start criticising other countries. And as you pointed out before, David, diplomacy is all about bringing up those issues that you need to bring up at the right time and also understanding your own position in geopolitical affairs. China is a superpower in this region, if not the whole world. Australia is a middle power at best. And whether we like it or not, that's not going to change in a hurry. But both countries need each other for a whole lot of different reasons for economic and cultural ties and Having both at loggerheads isn't in anybody's interests at all. Yeah, communication is good, and it's better to communicate with people than not. And that's absolutely true. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. addicted to the dopamine of rage Cutting down each other's branches to the bottom of the cage The prospect of discussion is a partisan parade Of sticks and stones and broken bones And look what you made me do And the midterm elections in the United States are over and there was talk of the red wave coming through from the Republicans, but that never actually eventuated. And most of the candidates supported by the former US President Donald Trump, they didn't get up. 
and the Democrats will still hold the Senate and the Republicans will control the US Congress by a very, very small margin. So this is all in America, of course, but it's an important election result over there, not just for America, but for Australia and the rest of the world. And many jurisdictions all over the world over the past few years, they've swung towards more liberal-minded or governments of a centre-left persuasion. And there was a feeling that after the election of a far-right Prime Minister in Italy recently, the world was going to start swinging the other way and the US was going to continue that trend that started off in Italy, but things have gone the other way. There was a feeling that the red wave coming in the US was going to be a signal of a return of Donald Trump to the presidency and he actually has announced his intention to run in 2024. But I'd say that if he does get to that final election race, he might be in for a little bit of a surprise. You can only run those types of things once. Back in 2016, his record to the politically uninitiated was pretty clean. He was best known as being a New York property developer who might have been a bit flashy and a bit showy and a bit dodgy maybe. 2016 was his last major victory. He lost the midterm elections in 2018. Now, let's be fair, most presidents do. He loses 2020 and loses fairly comprehensively to the point where people were saying, oh, Joe Biden's not that popular. <laughs> of course, part of that was the unpopularity then of Donald Trump. His true colours had really shown in his four years of presidency. 2020, of course, also led to the Capitol riots, which they tried to recreate here with the protesters going to the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne and trying to photograph it like the White House. Trump lost the 2022, really. I know that they regained the House, but there's been major gerrymanders and major legal changes in Republican states, making it more difficult for Democrats to be elected. Enough Democrats were re-elected despite this, and it is reflective of the Australian Liberal Party in that they couldn't work with gerrymander as much, but they were trying to work with a rigged system. You can never say never, but he's lost one, it seems, a lot of the heartland. A lot of the people who weren't sure which way to go and thought Trump might be a viable alternative. I'm not talking about the extreme MAGA people, the Make America Great Again people, but those people who thought we'll move towards the Republicans in 2016 and who run away from him in 2020. He's lost the press. Probably one of the best headlines of the year was on page 16 of the Wall Street Journal, and it said Florida man running for president. Back in 2016, that would have been Trump running and very triumphant. The New York Post called him Trumpy Dumpty, falling off the wall. He's lost Murdoch. So he's lost Fox, who are always massive supporters. We could always be guaranteed to get an interview. I, don't, I doubt he'll get an interview. And to be fair, I don't think he'll want an interview on Fox now. Oh, well, I think that Donald Trump might be the first politician to lose an election, even though he didn't run in that election. So that's quite an interesting situation. But the the Democrats have held the control of the Senate in the US and the 
The Senate in the US is actually quite different to the Senate in Australia. It's a far more powerful body. In the midterm elections, as you pointed out, the political party of the incumbent president usually loses many seats in both the Congress and the Senate. And usually it's enough to lose control of either the Congress or the Senate. And sometimes they lose both. And if they do lose both, they're regarded as a lame duck president. And no one wants to be known as the lame duck president. And Joe Biden has managed to avoid this. So this was a good election result for the Democrats or at least not as terrible as most people said that it would be. And Trumpism has been rejected. And that style of conservative, religious populism, that's been rejected for the time being, at least. And this follows on from Jair Bolsonaro being voted out in Brazil and replaced with the centre-left president. Boris Johnson has gone as British Prime Minister. Slovenia has just voted out a conservative leader as well. And we've had our own versions of Trump removed as well. First of all, Tony Abbott and then Scott Morrison at the last election. And this type of religious-based extremism that was prime promised by Trump-style candidates in the US. That's been thoroughly rejected. And there are still elements of this in Australia. We see people like Cory Bernardi. He's no longer in Parliament, of course, but we still see people like Cory Bernardi and Matt Canavan denying climate change and wearing the red MAGA hats and Barnaby Joyce doing his retail politics and pushing conspiracy theories. And all of this is supported by the One Nation Party and aided and abetted by players such as Sky News and News Corporation. So All of this has been pushed aside for the time being, but we do have to remember that all of these people and all of these right-wing extremists are always just one election away from returning to office. So they have been reduced at this stage, but they're always just around the corner waiting for the next opportunity to arise. Yeah, they're very determined. They're really puppets of the ultra-wealthy trying to defend their wealth. So there's a lot of resources there to protect them. Ultimately, you can't defeat the will of the people in a properly run democracy, which is why they don't want a properly run democracy, because they know that the will of the people is against them. I think that it's interesting that the right are starting to crumble away. We've said this before. It looks like it's the end of that neoliberal policy that has achieved nothing over the last 40 years and really has wasted the working lives of a couple of generations of people working in this way that didn't advance society at all in any substantial way for more people than not. The wealth never trickled down. Most economists who weren't caught up in that philosophy never thought it would. It didn't. It's going to be interesting. Rishi Sunak in Britain faces all kinds of interesting conundrums and whether he'll be able to deal with them or not will be interesting. Biden is moving right away from neoliberal uh, Reaganomics, Bushisms, and and even Trumpian economics, if if you can call it either of those two things, towards a far more Keynesian way of dealing with things and making sure that the money gets spread a little bit easier. He will probably come unstuck on healthcare as most Democrats do, because the healthcare, private health is a massive lobby. They have to be to run such what is really a massive con. And Hopefully for the young people now coming through school, they will get to work in a better, fairer and more equitable system than has been the last 40 years. 
And we can also see that the Liberal Party is still engaged in behaviour that's influenced by the Trumpist Republican Party, and it's evident in the political tactics of Peter Dutton. We can also see it in the behaviour of the Victoria Liberal Party, and that's probably an area that we need to be really worried about. They've got an election coming up pretty soon. The Victoria branch now is dominated by the religious right, and we've talked about this on New Politics before. They're undemocratic, they've got an extreme social and moral agenda, and they probably do depend on the electorate not paying that much attention to get into office. And they're also replicating the Trump material from the United States. The red make Victoria great again hats and pushing their conspiracy theory agendas. Apparently, there's still all these trapped children in the tunnels of Melbourne. I still can't work out where they are and why they can't be actually found. <laughs> that, that's actually footage from the West Connects and North Connects in Sydney. They're not trapped. They're just trying to get home in less than three days. <laughs> but they, these people are bad news. And we keep saying that there should be room for everyone in a democracy. But these people are anti-democratic and they just want to inflict extremist views on everyone else. So Trump has been rejected in the US. A form of Trumpism was rejected in Australia at the 2022 federal election. So we'll just have to see if there's any change to that in the Victoria election to see if these agendas can be rejected once again. When we look at, I think it's fair to say that Bolsonaro only just lost the last election. It is still within the realms of possibility that the British Conservatives will win the next election because they have so many seats. They've got an 80-seat majority uh, because Jeremy Corbyn was really outflanked on both sides. One, the Conservative Party, and two, the Labor Party, who a lot of the sitting members didn't like him for many reasons that we don't need to get into here. Anthony Albanese only got in by a couple of seats because a lot of the traditional Liberal voters and swinging voters went towards the independents here. It hasn't gone away yet. I think the ship of states is turning, but it's got a large turning circle and it's very slow. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. Just a few polls that are coming out as well. There was an essential poll out during the week that suggested that two-thirds of Australians support the Labor government's industrial relations bill to help increase wages, reduce the gender pay gap, encourage flexible working arrangements and allow workers from different companies to collectively negotiate pay rises. And this flies in the face of all the hysteria that was being pushed forward by the business groups and the Business Council and the Liberal Party who claimed that it was going to be the end of the world if these changes to industrial relations came through. And 
It might actually be a case where the reforms, once they are implemented, they might not achieve the things that they're hoping to achieve, but there is a high level of public support to move forward in that direction. Yeah, the public has moved on, definitely. In a democracy, it should be the will of the people. Now, of course, some of this will has to be tempered by more nuanced analysis. That Pauline Hanson has won seats in Parliament is the will of the people, but the will of the people isn't always the best. <laughs> oh, we're sounding a little bit like authoritarians there. I, yeah, I, I know. But that really points to more the paucity of public debate in Australia than any slam against the democratic and the Australian electoral system. If we had better media, there'd be much less extremist candidates, and that's on both sides. We'd get probably better candidates too. Facing up to a smart and intelligent media is a lot more difficult than facing up to some of the performers that we have now, as frustrating as it may be. Oh, also, how uh, the, the opponent that a government has will also affect their agenda as well. And I think that the Labor government has to strike while the iron is hot. And they've got very high support for the party, according to opinion polls. Anthony Albanese is presenting as a credible prime minister domestically and internationally, and the polls are supporting this. And this is the best time to implement as much of your agenda as possible while you've got the political capital to do that, because you're not going to get these high points for very long during the parliamentary term. And everything is looking fine and rosy for the Labor government at the moment. They've got a badly defeated opposition. The Liberal Party's in disarray with all of those different interest groups trying to pull it down. They've got an unpopular leader of the opposition and this isn't going to last forever and all popular leaders and all popular governments can become very unpopular very quickly. So it's best that you do what you can when you can before your political fortunes start to turn. There's also a few other opinions floating around as well. And just getting back to the Victoria election, and with the Victoria state election just a week away, the polls are suggesting that Daniel Andrews is in a strong position to win the election. The polls are hovering between 57 to 53% support for the Labor Party and hovering between 43 to 47% for the Liberal National Party and two-party preferred voting preferences. And, and that's still not looking very good for the Liberal National Coalition. They need a swing of about 10% to win a majority of seats, but in their best opinion poll position at the moment is suggesting a 4% swing at best. And, of course, they could still win the election. Surprise victories in elections tend to happen more often at state politics rather than they do at the federal level. And these polls could all be wrong. We could all be wrong. Everyone could be wrong. But the polls for Labor in Victoria are still very strong, despite every mainstream media outlet throwing as much dirt as possible at Daniel Andrews. And the latest narrative in the media is that people outside Victoria don't understand why Daniel Andrews is so popular. So they've tried everything else. So this is the new angle. Nothing else is working. So it's the Victoria electorate that's stupid and doesn't know what it's doing. But it's actually the media that doesn't get it because they just don't want to. They just keep trying to force feed their own agendas upon the public and when the public doesn't accept it, they blame the public. And it was the same thing that they tried to push during the 2022 election with the we don't know who Anthony Albanese is narrative or why don't we know who Albanese is and maybe the media should start looking at themselves. Everyone else seemed to know who Albanese was and the electorate voted Anthony Albanese and the Labor government into office. Everyone else except for the media understood this and it's their job to actually let people know about all of this. So this is just another dumb narrative that keeps missing its mark. They're still trying to get an interview with the Stepsy trip down to find out 
where he were, actually was on that night and where they paid off. And, yeah, to go back to an accident that happened, what, 18 months ago, something like that, they raked over the coals and raked over the coals and raked over the coals, found nothing. Rumours went round that it was business interests who'd hired someone to beat him up and that it, he was at his mistress's place and that's why he had to disappear. And, and we were there as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it shows that they don't have much when they could look at policy and criticise policy and say, well, this was wrong. And the only policy they could criticise was that Melbourne was the most lockdown city in Australia, which wasn't actually true. Sydney got four more days. And Sydney's lockdowns were racist and brutal in that the poorer parts of the city with uh, the less Anglo populations were locked down brutally with helicopters flying over at night, with people unable to leave the suburb, with the police just combing the streets all night looking for people who were breaching. But we don't hear about the bad job Gladys Berejiklian and Brad Hazard did. We do hear about Dan Andrews and the couple of health ministers who worked under him and Brett Sutton who became a bête noir for the media. I know that there is some things in IBAC which Dan Andrews may or may not be involved in, but they haven't really reported them except to say, oh, he's in front of IBAC. The findings haven't gone down yet, and I don't think he was even, has even been called as a witness yet, unlike other premiers I might mention who did star turns as witnesses in other state-based corruption bodies. David, I think it's time that we looked at the election betting odds because like most things in Australia, you can bet on elections, but Labor is $1.05 to win the Victoria election and the Liberal National Coalition are $9 to win the election. Now, I don't know anything about betting, but I do know that that's looking good for Labor and not looking good for the Liberal Party, but this doesn't actually mean anything at all. Betting on politics is a boutique market and won't suggest the result in the election in one way or another, but this leads on to another issue that we need to talk about. But I think that we've got a more insidious problem in Australia, and that's sports betting. And it was revealed during the week that an AFL umpire was arrested for betting on the Brownlow medal, and that's the AFL's fairest and best player in the men's competition, and it's where umpires lodge a secret vote after each game, and the winner is announced at the end of the season. And just in case you don't know, it would be the equivalent of the Dally M medal in Sydney or the Liz Alice Diamond medal in netball. So this is very, very big news in Melbourne, and I'm actually surprised that Daniel Andrews hasn't been blamed for it yet. But it's not really a surprise. We almost get more betting time than game time. Gambling on sports in Australia is around $8 billion per year. Sportsbet spends $130 million on advertising each year as well and also pays the AFL $2 million each year for advertising. And it's everywhere. It's at the game. It's on during a broadcast. The sports panel will discuss a game and then launch into a segment about the betting odds and which bet will offer the best return. And there's a lot of money involved here, but this has become a really big problem in sport. I think we've really got to start addressing it. Problem gambling is a massive problem. And a lot of gambling money goes overseas. And of course, gambling is only a problem when you can't afford it. Working in clubs and pubs a bit, I see people 
pour hundreds of dollars a night into poker machines. I see people's heartbreak as the sure thing horse that they was definitely going to win comes in at fourth and then the weekly wage is gone and they're hoping that they've got enough credit money on the credit card to get through for the next week and sometimes try and bet that money in the hope to make back the amount they just lost on the sure thing horse. I don't think banning gambling is the answer because it just that genuinely does just push it underground. Any resident in New South Wales knows that there were casinos in Sydney that operated illegally for decades. I do think banning advertising, stopping having bookmakers come on and discuss a game rather than sporting experts, stopping sporting commentators talking about the odds, stopping the normalising of gambling. And I, I should say too, I'm not really opposed to people using it as entertainment. People have the right to spend their money how they like. And if you want to go off and go to the races and have a nice day at the races and you spend $50 on gambling and you lose it or you get it back and you have a nice time. That's perfectly okay, but it shouldn't be pushed as a thing that men do. If you're a real man, you'll gamble and you can hear it in the ads they do. The traditional thing was that Australians would bet on two flies crawling up a wall. That really comes out of the war where soldiers were bored. They had a whole lot of money they couldn't spend and needed to entertain themselves. So you had the two up and that legacy lives on on the legal two up on Anzac Day where anyone can run a two up game in commemoration. The Melbourne Cup, which comes out of Australians liking to bet. And again, the most of the private betting agencies are owned in Britain or in Hong Kong or in Singapore. So the money just flows out of seas with no benefit to Australian. The old SP bookie was a form of banking and the local guys would keep their eyes on who was betting too much because they knew that it was bad for their business if if you had problematic gambling. So they'd cut you off and they'd help you manage your repayments and things like that. I can't see Ladbrokes doing that. And the motto within the betting industry is gamble responsibly, and that's about as lame as you can get. We wouldn't hear of smoke or vape responsibly in any messaging or use cocaine responsibly. Now, there are many problem gamblers in Australia, but if people want to bet, that's their business. But it's being shoved down people's throats, and I think that's what's bothering people the most. And some people might be thinking, well, what's this all got to do with politics? And there is a political dimension to everything in life, and governments are addicted to gambling as well. Through sports betting revenue and taxes on poker machines and those sort of areas, the Australian government collects around $7 billion in gambling revenue each year, and state governments also collect around 10 to 11% of their tax revenue through gambling taxes. So their addiction is as bad as anyone else's. And much of this revenue is being collected from lower socioeconomic areas as well. So I'm not trying to be a wowser about all of this. And there is that argument that some money goes back into sports clubs and community programs, but it's just reached a level of overdrive. And I'm not too sure what the solution is, but something's got to be really done about this. Again, walking into a newsagent and half the front counter is taken up by lotto and lotteries and scratch lotteries. But trying to find a decent magazine is difficult. And a lot of newsagents find themselves in the position where they have to they don't want to sell the gambling. They'd rather sell magazines and newspapers, but they have to because that's the only way they're getting any money. And they're not getting that great a return on it. And it's with the banning of cigarette advertising or tobacco advertising, tobacco drops. Now there's still a lot of people who vape, but nowhere near the percentage of people who used to smoke. If you're around in the seventies and eighties, 
I, I wasn't, but I heard about this. You could walk into a room with 20 people and 18 of them would be smoking and 19 of them would be drinking. We still have alcohol ads. I would ban them too. And again, not to stop recreational drinking and people who like to have a nice glass of wine and all of that's perfectly fine. It's more about getting it out of the hands of people who shouldn't be doing it, problem gamblers. Before you say, oh, this is the nanny state, personal responsibility is a big thing. But it's hard to make those choices when you're being bombarded with, this is what adults do. This is what it is to make yourself look handsome and pretty and cool and desirable. And those ads bombard. I'm pretty sure if we banned gambling advertising, Channel 9 and Channel 7 would go broke in about three weeks and Channel 10 in about four. We can cope with that. <laughs> We can rebuild them, we can start them again. Uh, maybe their advertising people would have to work a bit harder and find other products to advertise. But we can't continue encouraging people to hurt themselves and their families in the way that we have been. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.